0: If you were to choose just one word to describe your relationship with Jesus, what would you use? Brother, friend, comforter? Paul had a specific word, and we'll take a look at that next on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. connected to Jesus. In fact, so much so, he's going to use you to write two-thirds of his New Testament. And what word do you use to describe your relationship with Jesus, being that connected? Slave. That's the word Paul uses. He finds that he is a slave of Christ Jesus. Is that the word you would use? Hi there. Welcome to Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. We begin a wonderful journey in the book of Romans today. Starting in Chapter 1, we're going to take a look at Paul, the man, and his message. Here's Pastor Steve Converse now with more.
1: The popular Bible expositor who's now deceased, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he began teaching in Philadelphia at the church there, um, and the, the book he taught through was Romans. And basically, his broadcast uh, was heard for 11 years, a weekly message out of Romans. Now, we're not going to be in Romans for 11 years, trust me, but uh, that's just amazing to me. And he says this about the the book of Romans. He says, "A a scientist may say that mother's milk is the most perfect food known to men and may give you an analysis showing all of its chemical components, a list of vitamins it contains, and an estimated list of uh, calories in a given quantity, a baby will take that milk without the remotest knowledge of its content. And that baby will grow day by day, smiling and thriving in its ignorance. So it is with the profound truths of the Word of God. Uh, It's been said that Romans will delight the greatest... A person and captivate the mind of the consummate genius. Yet it has the ability to bring to t- tears the humblest soul and refreshment to the simple minded. It will knock you down and then lift you up, it will strip you naked and then clothe you with eternal elegance. The book of Romans took a mere tinker, John Bunyan, and turned him into a spiritual giant the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and the Holy War. This letter quotes the Old Testament about 57, 60 times throughout its book, more than any other New Testament book. It repeatedly uses the word God 154 times, the word law 77 times, Christ 66 times, sin 45 times, Lord 44 times, and faith 40 times. John MacArthur says, Romans answers many questions concerning man and concerning God. Some of the more significant questions that it answers are, and he continues, he says, what is the good news of God? Is Jesus really God? What is God like? How can God send people to hell? Why do men reject God and his son, Jesus Christ? Why are there false religions and idols? What is man's biggest sin? Why are there sexual perversions, hatred, crime, dishonesty, and all other evils in the world? And why are they so pervasive and rampant? He continues, he says, What is the standard by which God condemns people? How can a person who has never heard the gospel be held spiritually responsible? Do Jews have a greater responsibility to believe than to Gentiles? Who is a true Jew? Is there any spiritual advantage to being Jewish? How good is man in himself? How evil is man in himself? Can a person keep God's law perfect, perfectly? How can a person know he is a sinner? How can a sinner be forgiven and justified by God? How is a Christian related to Abraham? And what is the importance of Christ's death? And what is the importance of the resurrection? What is the importance of his present life in heaven? For whom did Christ die? Where can men find real peace and hope? How are all men related spiritually to Adam? And how are believers related spiritually to Jesus Christ? What is grace and what does it do? How are God's grace and God's law related? How does a person die spiritually and become reborn? What is the Christian's relationship to sin? How important is obedience in the Christian life? Why is living a Christian life such a struggle? How many natures does a Christian have? Still more questions are, what does the Holy Spirit do for the believer? How intimate is the Christian's relationship to God? Why is there suffering? Will the world ever be different? What are election and predestination? How can Christians pray properly? How secure is a believer's salvation? What is God's present plan for Israel? What is his future plan for Israel? Why and for what have the Gentiles been chosen by God? What is the Christian's responsibility to Jews and to Israel? What is true spiritual commitment What is a Christian's relationship to the world in general, to the unsaved, even to other Christians, even to human government? What is genuine love and how does it work? How do Christians deal with issues that are neither right nor wrong in themselves? What is true freedom? And how important is unity in the church? Now you can see just by that list, it filled two pages of my notes, of questions that Paul answers in the book of Romans. Incredible book. There's an anonymous poet, and he wrote this little poem about Romans. He says, Oh, long and dark the stairs I trod, with trembling feet to find my God, gaining a foothold bit by bit, then slipping back and losing it, never progressing, striving still, with weakening grasp and faltering will, bleeding to climb to God while he serenely smiled, unnoting me. Then came a certain time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby down to the lowest step, my fall, as if I had not climbed at all. Now when I lay despairing there, listen, a foothold, footfall on the stair, on that same stair where I, afraid, faltered and fell and lay dismayed. And lo, when hope had ceased to be, my God came down the stairs to me. That's what we want to pray, that God will come down the stairs to our heart as we go through this for the next couple of years, this tremendous letter of Paul. And last week we looked at just some introductory things. We know the author is Paul, and you can read commentary after commentary, and you can find hundreds of pages of people that dispute that fact. Well, we don't believe the author was Paul. Paul. The very first word says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's good enough for me. Paul's the author. Let's move on. The date, he wrote around 56, 58 AD. He wrote to a church in Rome. He wrote for the express purpose of preparing his visit Defending the gospel and resolving conflicts that occurred in the new church between Jews and Gentile before this time They were they were separated and now the new church was here and they were called together to worship together We looked at the outline briefly And uh, that's there in your 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 or in your notes And you can look at that or it was last week actually, um but it's up on the screen. You have an introduction, you have sin, you have salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. That takes us through the entire book. That's a general outline, but that's kind of what we're going to be following. Last week we looked at Paul the man and how they started this book. It's, it's very common. They named the author first, right up front. And Paul was one of those individuals who had a radical conversion. He experienced a a radical conversion by Christ visiting him on the road to Damascus. Before that, he was executing Christians at will as a Pharisee. Now he was converted. He was blinded for a time. And the Lord said, hey, I've done this so that you can become my servant. And God moved him to uh, work for him in a miraculous way. The one thing we can get out of that is we have to ask ourselves, has my heart been changed by personally experiencing God's grace the way Paul did? Have we experienced God's grace in Christ's death and his resurrection? Am I like Paul, a new person through faith in Christ? You can be if you're not here this morning. You can be. You simply cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me. The second thing we looked at last week was Paul's master, that he was a slave of Christ. It says a servant in the ESV, but the word there is doulas, it's slave, that's what it means. We don't like to use that word a lot today in our society it has connotations but it takes us back to the civil war <laughs> but we have to understand during the Paul, time of Paul there were probably anywhere from 500 to 600,000 slaves in Rome just in Rome alone everybody owned or was owned by somebody else it's interesting that in the new testament most of the new testament writers refer to themselves as a slave of Christ even in philippians if you look over at philippians chapter 2 philippians 2 verses 5 to 7 we see that jesus christ even is referred to as a slave philippians chapter 2 verse 5 it says have this mind among yourselves which was in christ which is yours in christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but made himself no- nothing taking the form of a what of a servant of a slave Jesus Christ himself was a slave to the will of God. So we began last week of listing some characteristics of what a slave of Jesus Christ is. How do we know? And today, I think in our world of self-rights and selfishness and everything that's going on around us, um, it's very important that we understand that as Christians, we're called not to a life of, of uh, you know, self self-interested things and providing for ourselves, continuing and all that stuff, and concerned about number one. That's not what we're called to be as Christ. We're called to be a slave of Christ in every way. And so a lot of people think that they become a Christian and they can just go do whatever they want because all their sins are forgiven, so hey, let's just go live it up. That's not true, and we're going to be looking at that. The first thing we looked at last week, just in way in review, continuing, is... Total submission to the master, that's what a slave was required to do. We looked at Matthew chapter 8, where he's speaking to a centurion soldier. And he says, go, about the one under him, under his authority, go. And he goes, and to another he says, come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does it. Basic, number one, bottom line, when you come to Christ, your will is not your own anymore. You're submitting to someone greater than you. It tells us that a, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. The servant replied in Luke 14, Sir, what you have commanded is done. And even Jesus said that he laid this down an example in John 13. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, because a servant is not greater than his master. We're not called to a lifestyle in Christianity just to kind of do our own thing. We have to get that out of our mind. We're called, when we come to Christ, we yield our lives in submission to his will, not our own. I remember when I was going to school, graduated from high school, went to college, Indiana University, Pennsylvania, was working on my degree in criminology. And lo and behold, right in the middle of my degree, I get saved. I wanted to go be a police officer, something like that, something law enforcement. And God changed my whole direction, my whole purpose I was not a person that would ever think that you stand in front of people every week and and speak. That would just be my last thing on my list. And even to this day, it's uncomfortable for me to do it. But it's what God has commanded me and called me to do. And so when you come to Christ, your will is not your own anymore. You're in total submission to your new master. And that's a stumbling block for a lot of folks. Right there. And that's what Jesus taught, right? He so says, if you want to come after me and follow me, what? You have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily. You have to die to yourself continually. It's not about what we want, beloved. It's about what God wants us to do, wants to be part of, what his will is. It's not our own will. Now, the Bible does say that he gives us the desires of, his, of our hearts. So I think when we're living in accord with God's word, and we're living a righteous life, and, and we're trying our best to obey, even when we stumble and fall, we know our position in Christ is still that of forgiven. When we go to God and we confess our sin and claim His forgiveness. That somehow God allows us to continue to, to, to be used, and we, we're, we're used in a way that is submissive to our own will. And sometimes God changes our desires. I was so privileged to have an opportunity after I completed my degree in criminology and I went to Bible college and I was in ministry and I was in between churches in Southern California. God actually gave me the opportunity to work in law enforcement to some degree with the district attorney's office. And I knew within three months, there's no way I could ever be a police officer. I would go nuts. Just all the bureaucracy and all the stuff they have to go through and they're arresting this guy today and tomorrow he's out, you know, thumbing his nose at him. It's just crazy, and it's, it's even worse today. This was many years ago, but it's even worse today. And So God gave me kind of a glimpse of that kind of, a, of, of work, and it interests me. It still interests me today. Hence, I'm serving as a chaplain and other things with the police department, and so God blesses you with the desires of your heart, but there's no way I would ever do that um, job on a, on a full-time basis, nor could I. Just not cut out for that kind of thing. And so our submission to God's will is important, our submission to the Master. Secondly, we notice that we have no rights of our own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why are you boasting that you have it? See, one of the things we have to understand as Christians, everything that comes into our life, every blessing, everything that comes into our life is by the direct hand of God. Now, he may gift you with a good work ethic, he may gift you with intellect, he may gift you with the ability to do sales or work hard in this area or that area, but we have to understand that it's not our own doing. That's something that God has gifted us. He created you that way. And so we don't have rights on our own. We don't have any personal rights. We don't have the right to stand here before God and say, well, I'm a self-made man. No, you're not. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Whom you have from God. That you're not your own, that you've been bought with a price. He says, so glorify God in your body. See, it's very important that we understand as believers that we don't have rights to go out and do as we please. And unfortunately, a lot of people misunderstand grace as just that. They think, oh, we're covered by the grace of God. We can go do whatever we want. You know, we don't want to be legalistic, so we just, you know, live and let live and and let God take care of the rest. That's a false teaching. We're called to be disciplined. We're called to live righteously. We're called to do what the Word of God tells us to do. We don't have our own agenda. We don't have our own rights. And then thirdly, a slave is one who honors his earthly masters at all times. Honors his earthly masters at all times. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Why do we put this in here? Because we all work. We all have a job for the most part. We all have had a job. If we're unemployed now, hopefully we'll get another one. But at some point along the you're going to have somebody over you. And the Word of God addresses that. He, it addresses it very directly. Even over in First Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, it says, Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And not only to those who are good and gentle, listen to this, but also to those who are unreasonable. Some of you may be sitting here this morning saying, yeah, you don't know my boss. My boss is a total jerk. You know, if you had to work for my boss, you wouldn't have a good attitude. I can't say whether I would or not, but if I didn't, I'd be living in disobedience to God's word because we're called to be submissive to those over us, to honor them, even though they don't deserve honor. It says in verse 19 of that same 1 Peter 2, it says, For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward god a person bears up under the sorrows and when suffering unjustly for what credit is it if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience what's paul saying here he's saying what is it if you if you're being treated wrongly by your master but you're disobeying him and then you're saying oh look at how he's treating me well that's your own doing you don't get any credit for that but it says What if when you do what is right and you still suffer and you do it patiently and you endure it, this finds favor with God? See, sometimes God calls us to a life that's not just happy, happy in Jesus, you know, making your way through the the rose petals or whatever. That's not, uh, you know, always the Christian life. Sometimes he calls you to a, a life of suffering. Some of you have health issues that you've had for years. And you may be sitting there asking God, why did God do this? I don't know, but he has a purpose. He has a plan. He hasn't forgotten about you. Maybe you're dealing with other issues here this morning. Don't ever think that God has kind of took taken his hand or turned a blind eye to you. That's not the case. And when you endure those things that God has put in your life, it's to make you better, not bitter. And so we're to honor our earthly masters. We're to honor our employers. We're to honor Christ in everything we do the fourth thing there we're to be kind and not quarrelsome this is interesting in second timothy chapter 2 verse 24 and 25 it says this and the lord's servant the lord's slave must not be quarrelsome (laughs) but kind to everyone have you ever met a christian who's quarrelsome they're met a Christian, it's just everybody's wrong and they're the only right one and they make it very clear to everybody that they have a corner on God's truth and the rest of the, hell, the world is damned to hell and it's only them that are right. And unless you do things exactly the way they think that it needs to be done, you're wrong and somehow less spiritual. It's a quarrelsome person. Well, it says here the Lord's servant, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but you have to be kind to everyone. Does that mean my boss is a jerk? Yeah, that means your boss is a jerk. Does that mean the neighbor across the street that just causes grief? Yeah, be kind. Don't be quarrelsome. There's some people that just like to argue for argument's sake. And it says, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. Gentleness. Some people are more gentle than others. Some people are more merciful than others. Some people are gifted in such a way that, boy, they could listen to somebody for hours and then just kind of lovingly kind of steer them in the right direction. There's other people like myself. After 15 minutes, I'm ready to pull my hair out that I don't even have anymore and say, What's wrong with you? Just do this. This is what the Word of God says. Just do this, and it'll work out. We're all different, but we shouldn't be quarrelsome. We have to be kind, we have to be understanding, we have to be compassionate. And it tells us there in that verse the reason why that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, when you're out there trying to share Christ with people, you're out there trying to witness. I've seen some people that are are just the opposite of kind. They're out there, they're condemning everybody to hell, they're being quarrelsome with anybody that disagrees with them, and they're standing on the the street corner doing it all in the name of Jesus with a great big Bible. And I'm thinking, what a sad testimony that is. Now, they may be speaking truth, but it's not being heard by anybody just because of the way they're doing it. And see, we need to handle our opponents with grace, with gentleness, That maybe God would grant them repentance because that's exactly what they need. Don't ever think when you're witnessing to somebody who's disagreeing with you, somehow your slick little presentation or your words are somehow going to convert their soul because that's just not going to happen. It's only by the grace of God. It's only when we take the word of God and, and speak it into people's lives for them to hear that God transforms their heart. He leads them. He grants them repentance. That verse there is interesting to me because we have a lot of Christians going around today telling unbelievers that they need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent. When I look at that verse, I think you're telling them to do something they cannot do. (laughs) Because it says the only way they can repent is if God grants them that repentance. And that granting of that repentance leads them to a knowledge of the truth.
0: Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m., We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade 5. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City, the zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650 650- 366-9923. That's 650 9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.